Hello, this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. Experimental treatment of the insane. Secret tests by MI5 on volunteers thinking they were helping find a cure for the common cold. Cold War weapon research by the Ministry of Defence on unsuspecting troops. The early history of LSD in the UK was rather inauspicious. And then, all hell, or heaven, broke loose. In this episode of The Bureau, we take a trip through the revolutions in the head caused by LSD acid from the 1950s to now. Along the way, we meet some of the surprising characters who experimented, manufactured, dealt, swallowed and were transformed by it, as well as those who tried to stop them, including an unlikely Breaking Bad-style pharmacist in Islington, the Microdot Gang, and even those East End gangsters, the Cray Twins. Now, while we're turning down the lights and turning up the music, join us at bureauoflostculture.com. You can check out all our previous episodes with show notes. You can sign up for our countercultural newsletter. And you can support us to take further trips down the roads we call counterculture. And nothing in this program is a recommendation to take LSD, any other illegal drug, or in fact to break the law. But now, if you're ready, sit back, relax, and as the lilac time once sang, blow out the candles, kick off your sandals. Our guest today is Britain's foremost psychedelic historian, Andy Roberts, author of the book Albion Dreaming, a popular history of LSD in the UK, Acid Drops, and of course, the biography of Michael Hollingshead, acid guru, wannabe acid guru, the man who turned on the world as he styled himself. Welcome, Andy. Hi, how are you doing? Very good. What's well, Andy, thanks for coming back. Of course, you covered uh, in some detail the strange, strange life and times of uh, Michael Hollingshead uh, in two episodes. And then, of course, we had another episode with Vanessa, his daughter, thanks to you, uh, exploring his life, which a lot of which revolved around the subjects of acid and LSD, him famously claiming to be the man who turned on the world and at least Timothy Leary, <laughs> um, uh, and Morris, or the Divine Rascal, in fact, as you referred to him. So, but today, Andy, you are going to walk us through, or going to lead us on a trip, as it were, through the history of LSD in the UK, based on, I suppose, Albion Dreaming, which is your book about it. Of course, you've got at least one book coming out, two over the next couple of years, uh, on the subject too. So, we, should we drop a tab and just start? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, well, I think the first thing that needs to be said is that it is impossible to nail down an absolutely comprehensive history of LSD in Britain just by the very nature of the substance itself. It doesn't lend itself to facts. Um, so my version of its history might be completely different to someone else's, but I always try to go back to uh, first principles and you know the, the people involved and the prime sources. So looking at it from that way, um, obviously we know that LSD was, was uh, discovered in 1938, but not actually tried by Albert Hoffman until 1943. And then after that, uh, it took on a life of its own in America, where uh, um, you know the CIA and the FBI and all those little agencies were trying their best to weaponize it in some way. And uh, Britain got hold of this. And at some point in the early 1950s, 
Um, the MOD started making um, approaches to America to get some LSD sent to them. But possibly the first person that we definitely know to have brought LSD to Britain was uh, Dr. Ronnie Sanderson, who was a psychotherapist at Powick Hospital, which was at that time a um, was what they were called in the old days um, a mental hospital for for um, you know seriously deranged people. Uh, and he was uh, treating people there on, on sort of Freudian principles. And anyway, Ronnie went on a, a tour of um, various laboratories and, and uh, um, facilities in, in Switzerland in 1951, one of which was Sandoz, where he met Albert Hoffman. And the big buzz at the time was um, LSD, which um, Sandoz were marketing as um, Delicid uh, and, and marking it out to uh, psychiatrists and psychologists. Uh, with no real knowledge of what it did, other than that it, it sort of, they thought it might sort of recreate some form of mental uh, instability, which then people could use to study. Anyway, Sanderson liked the idea of this, and he took home uh, a box of um, LSD ampules, which Hoffman gave, it, gave them to him. And in, I think, about the autumn of 1952, he started treating his patients with them with quite remarkable results, and he published on this. That was in London, was it? No, that was in Powick, which is just outside Gloucester. A huge mental hospital it was massive building uh, very victorian very sort of um, dark and foreboding uh, but um, sanderson was treating people there and he was treating people with lsd for alcoholism and um, other forms of um, sort of nervous disposition dispositions and it was bizarre because obviously we take um, lsd very seriously and wouldn't just sort of you know take it anywhere but in those days people were turning up at um, sanderson's clinic at nine o'clock in the morning on the bus often uh, they'd be taking two to three hundred micrograms of pure Sandoz LSD, which is, you know, quite a hefty whack, to say the least. Um, and then they would be uh, put in a room with, um, they had a um, some form of either a chalkboard or, or some paper to write on. They might have a record player with a few records and various other tactile things for them to play with and, and a bed to lay on. And they would just be basically left to it. And uh, one of the nurses... Uh, psychiatric nurses would come every now and again, asking them if they were all right, answer any questions they had, and then they would go home again at tea time on the it's bus. Absolute, it's absolutely amazing, isn't it? I mean, you just do not associate, well, for start off, I mean, I didn't associate acid with the early 50s at all I mean, in this country. But I, And just to sort of pick up on that, I mean, also interesting because, of course, we are at a time now when the sort of psychotherapeutic value of psychedelics is being reassessed you know we're probably on the brink of some of them becoming legal in different contexts right uh, so that was right there at the beginning too the psychotherapeutic use but also of course you know the first uh, the first response of the establishment is to weaponize this new thing isn't it i mean you know we know it's cia and mk ultra and, and the brits at it too with this so they're hoping that they could actually turn it into some sort of cold war weapon that they could use to discombobulate the enemy well they, they, they were doing it and they, they, those two threads are running in tandem because throughout the 1950s you've got Ronnie Sanderson and maybe up to 50 other um, psychotherapists using LSD in various clinics up and down the country but from 1953 onwards um, the secret intelligence services MI5, MI6 etc decided they wanted to turn it into uh, an interrogation tool and they put um, adverts up in the mess rooms of many many um, um, armed forces, uh, Navy, Air Force, and so on, mess rooms saying, would you like to take part in an experiment to cure the common cold? And you were, and they were saying, you come to Porton Down, you get two weeks 
um, full pay, luxury conditions, and you just have to take part in our experiments. Well, of course, you know, to, to people in national service, which a lot of military people were in the early 50s, this was fantastic, like a, a two-week break. And hundreds of people signed up. Um, and I interviewed a couple of them who, who went to Portland Down, and they were given, um, every morning of the test, they were all given a drink of something, uh, some of which was a, a placebo, some of which was actually LSD. And then uh, many white coats would come round with clipboards and ask them loads of questions like, you know, how many beans make five or how long's a piece of string or lots of ridiculous <laughs> things, which, which the people I interviewed just found completely hilarious because once they were tripping and they didn't know they were tripping because they had no idea what they'd taken, the whole world was turning into like a cartoon for them. And the, the idea of these men coming to question them uh, about you know metrics and things like that was just hilarious. And the two people I interviewed actually escaped from from the from the base and went into Salisbury uh, and went to a dance where they said that everyone turned into cowboys and Indians. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've got to say, I take my hat off to them because I mean, if if I somebody lured me into a, a white room and you know told me to lie in a bed and then pe- then men in white coats were coming and asking me strange questions, I, I'm not sure that that would have been my response. <laughs> Hilarity would have been paranoia. I mean, surely, surely some of the experiences were were um, at the other end, were they? Of like, you know, terrifying. Yeah, they they came out in the mid nineties when when there was um, a series of actions taken against the MOD for these um, LSD tests because you know the, the the people who were claiming compensation were saying, well, we had no idea what we were actually taking. We were lulled into thinking we were doing something that might help us cure the common cold, not taking it quite a dangerous uh, psychedelic drug. And lots of people, you know, were given payouts on that basis. Um, but the, the point is, the MI, MI5 and MI6 soon realised that it was of no use whatsoever as a tool of interrogation because people, you just couldn't pin them down to anything. They'd just drift off or right. just start talking about something else. So, so that was abandoned. Okay, so so the, the idea was that actually it was an interrogation aid or to be an interrogation aid, not this much uh you know quoted uh, idea that you're going to drop it into the water supply i think you said you said before that's kind of not really feasible is it that, that comes can... later that, that was okay. mi5 mi6's interpretation uh, okay. by the time we get to the end of the 1950s the psychotherapeutic um, aspect of it was still going strong but the mi5 mi6 tests had stopped now in 1963, I think it was, the MOD decided to test uh, LSD on its troops because they wanted to use it as a battlefield incapacitant. And the idea was, and it had already occurred in, in, in various um, military uh, papers in America, that you know if you could in some way introduce LSD into the water supply of you know a town, uh, a ship, uh, a- anywhere where people are based, or you could diffuse it via some form of spray or bomb or something like that. Obviously, um, you know, our troops would be able to just walk in, take over with no no need to destroy buildings or bomb or anything like that. So um, the MOD ran over two or three years. They ran three separate tests, um, all with silly code names relating to money, like Operation Recount or Operation Recharge and things like that. Well, let's have a listen to what happened in Operation Moneybags when an incapacitating agent, as it was called, was given in water to troops from the 41st Royal Marine Commando. For this experiment, a simple exercise was devised based on the internal security problems met by our forces during the EOKA campaign in Cyprus. 17 Marine volunteers were organized into a troop of two sections with a headquarters element. The troop was given the task of capturing as many terrorists as possible 
and of locating some stores which had been hidden in defined areas. In order to provide control conditions, the troops were given the same quantity of water to drink before each day's exercise. Unknown to the troops, the drug was added to the water on the second day. For the sake of safety, the troop were not given any ammunition during the exercise. The drug was given orally to the men in the hospital ward at 11.15. At 11.40, the first effects of the drug make their appearance. Two marines are reported to the troop commander for insubordination, no one realizing that their behavior was due to the first effects of the drug. The drug is also beginning to affect the other men. They no longer take cover, they relax and begin to giggle. At this time, one man is more severely affected than the others, losing all contact with reality, dropping his rifle and becoming unable to take any further part in the operation. In fact, he has to be withdrawn from the exercise a few minutes later. The movements of the rocket launching team have become slow and uncoordinated, and it is apparent that they are now incapable of taking proper aim. At this point, 45 minutes after administration of the drug, these men, although becoming more and more detached from the reality of their environment, are still capable of effective response to any sudden stimulus. However, their response is for limited periods only, after which they again become indecisive and lethargic in their movements. They are bunching and fail to get under cover quickly. Without the stimulus of an immediate objective, the men give way to laughter. Defensive positions are not adopted. However, when the enemy throws a thunder flash into the section, the men are again stimulated into awareness. By five minutes past twelve, however, the troops are so disorientated that they are incapable of appreciating this. The sergeant tries to use a map and they start arguing about their position. Men with no specific task to perform have relapsed into laughter and inconsequential behavior. At 12.10, number one section makes contact with number two section. Neither section commander feels himself capable of continuing to command and each tries to hand over to the other. In the absence of firm leadership, the men begin to drift aimlessly. In beaches, an enemy walks right through the position undetected, returns and throws a thunder flash. A few men respond sufficiently to capture and search him, but 70 minutes after the administration of the drug, with one man climbing a tree, the troop commander gives up, saying, I am wiped out as an attacking force. Organization of the men was made difficult by the fact that reality had become so distorted for some of them that they became unwilling and even afraid to enter the ambulance and other vehicles. Most of them are still laughing as they talk about their symptoms and the day's exercise. At the same time, the troop commander, although feeling more capable of thinking and acting normally, is, in fact, still experiencing one of the characteristic effects of the drug. Everything he looks at appears to be patterned. While looking at the white ceiling, he describes geometrical patterns which are coloured and three-dimensional. They appear to move in and out of each other. There we go. What do you think the results of that trial was? Then? Uh, they realised that it didn't work as a battlefield incapacitant <laughs> because, again, it was you couldn't control people. It didn't just sort of knock them out and leave them on the floor. It left them wandering round with, with guns and things that could go off at any time. So after three tests, the MOD decided that, um, that it, was, it was a pointless exercise and it was stopped. Also, in fact, quite could be quite counterproductive if it convinced um, the troops of the of the benefits of peace and love. 
Well, that, that's true. I mean, obviously, that that is comes with the whole sort of set and setting aspect of acid. In, in that, if you think about that sort of thing, you'll get that sort of thing. Well, if you if you remember the armed forces, you might not be thinking along those lines. Probably just thinking about your girlfriend somewhere or something <laughs> like that. Um, so, but before that, in the late fifties, uh, LSD started to leak out of the um, official establishments, you know, after, after the hospitals and, and and from America and places like that and started to become used recreationally. Now, again, no one can pin down exactly when the first recreational use of um, LSD was in Britain, but the earliest source I've come across was from 1959, uh, right. when um, the guy that I interviewed was um, a runner for uh, some London gangsters, and he was sent one day with a small package to deliver, to deliver to someone, and they opened it in his presence, and it was little um, squares of blotting paper uh, soaked with LSD. So that's quite an early... Um, form of recreational use. As the 60s sort of started to progress, more and more LSD was flooding in from, a lot of it came from America, a lot of it came from uh, the Mediterranean, and a lot of it came from uh, the Netherlands, where possibly the world's first illicit LSD uh, lab uh, had started up at around the same time as one in America, around 1963. So there was sort of getting to be a healthy tripping scene because it was permeating you know, the upper echelons uh, of people in London, you know, the, the creative types and, and the well-off types and people who just wanted a new and exciting um, thrill. So it was, you know, it was well underway by the time we actually get to the flower power period, if you like, which is what most people think about um, Well, Well, I mean, Joey Mellon, you know, as I mentioned earlier, that um, spent an hour with Joey and, and actually that's exactly what he said. He said he was, he was you know, he'd kind of like weed had been his... Uh, entree to the idea of dropping out you know he's from a sort of upper middle class background but he'd heard on the grapevine as it were that there was this stuff called LSD and the people were talking about it and were excited by the thought of it but nobody tried it and it wasn't until he went to I think it was Ibiza or, or Spain and he met Bart Hugers who was a Dutch person who was a chemist actually a sort of biochemist anyway who was actually manufacturing his own acid and that's where that's where Joey got his first hit from uh, and then subsequently, Joey brought it back to the was one of the people who brought it back to London, you know, and started to and became a kind of uh, proselytizer for its effects and benefits, right? And that was, yeah, I guess that was like before before the middle of the sixties, yeah. Yes, it was about 64, 65, I think. And, and there was a very healthy um, acid scene in London and people um, were just having fun. You know, there was none of this sort of drenched in, in sort of spiritual or religious stuff or, you know, um, anything like that. It was just really about having fun and open, opening up a new world of colour, of sound, texture, well, just everything that, that acid does. And people were really, really into it. Um, and this all started to change in, in sort of late 65, where Michael Hollingshead, who was the Brit British guy who had turned Tim Leary onto acid, came back to Britain, sent back to Britain, in fact, by Tim Leary, who opened up the World Psychedelic Centre in uh, Pont Street in, in Chelsea. And, of course, Hollingshead brought a load of Leary's books with him and he brought a lot Leary's philosophy. And he was trying to sort of impose that in many ways on the, on the London tripping scene. And, you know, Leary had all these weird ideas like you should fast for a day before you took LSD, not eat anything at all. And that you always had to have uh, spiritual tapes going on in the background and, and meditate and all that sort of thing. And this came as a bit of a... Um, almost a laughable shock, I think, to a lot of the, the British trippers, because they were just, you know, having parties, listening to music, just rambling around, looking at the world and thinking, you know, this is absolutely fantastic <laughs> what we're seeing. Uh, and Hollingshead wanted to impose this sort of structure on people, which some people took, to, but a lot of people didn't like. They'd been doing quite well without Hollingshead. Joey was part of that kind of the existing London tripping scene. And it, as you 
said about Hollingshead before, you know, wants to make it all about Tibetan Book of the Dead and, you know, you structure your trips and all this stuff. And Joey was saying, well, we didn't want to do any of that. I mean, we wanted to, we, we, we wanted just to sort of put the music on and, you know, look at some, look at some visuals and, and have fun, basically, and, you know, think about stuff and talk and, and you know, and, and that. So, okay, so there's that kind of clash. You've already got those two things. You've got the kind of more esoteric serious this is a new religion type thing going on from the state states and then you've got the more maybe the more hedonistic and scene the hedonistic side of it also give gave birth to all the um you know the many changes that, we, that we've seen that come with lsd like you know people's interest in different sorts of music different sorts of clothes and fabrics and things like that that all came out of that the, the spiritual side was certainly there but but it, it shouldn't have and wasn't a dominating force um, and at this, this same time, around 1966-67, um, Britain's first LSD, illicit LSD lab was, was founded. Um, and interestingly enough, it had, it had connections with the Cray twins. And <laughs> there's a chemist called um, Victor, Victor James Kapoor, who had a chemist shop on New North Road in Camden. And Victor had um, a liking for, um, for prostitutes, basically. And... These prostitutes that he hung out with were part of a, an acid scene uh, in, in Notting Hill um, that was run by a, a beatnik called Terry Taylor, who wrote um, a novel which had the first use of LSD in, it in Britain, which is in 1960-61. Anyway, basically, um, it was arranged that they would take photographs, compromising photographs of Kapoor, and then show him them and say, you're going to make some LSD for us now, aren't you, Vic? And he did that, in fact, in two labs. He had two labs, uh, one at his home and one at his... Um, it is New North Road shop, and between about 1967 and 68, he made millions of doses of LSD, much of which, which was actually sent to America. And a lot of the American acid that people talk about as being, you know, absolutely fantastic, and it must have come from Owsley or it must have come from Burnsville, a lot of it actually came from Victor Kapoor in, in Camden. You make that point at the beginning of All Been Dreaming, and which is that, you know, we tend to think about LSD as largely an American story. But in fact, of course, it originated in, in, in Europe anyway, and it, and it was as much a British story, particularly when it comes to music and psychedelic art and all that stuff too, not to take away from the Americans on that but what you're actually saying as well is that apart from Hollingshead another major player in the scene was Victor who was on the, just on the chemistry for a second without going into the kind of like the formulas and stuff but I'm assuming then that it was known how to make it and it wasn't that difficult to make but you, you obviously needed to do it under some controlled circumstances and so know what you were doing but it will if you if you knew the formula and how to do that it wasn't that complicated right anyone with a good knowledge of chemistry and the right equipment and the, right. the the formula or recipe could follow it. I mean, right. you know, luckily Kapoor was was a chemist who would have some some training and was able to do that sort of thing. Um, but it, you know, it isn't that hard to make. Some people will say it's some some not, but I think if you've got the right equipment and you've got the right precursor ingredients, you know, you you just got to follow the the formula. So he was a sort of rather unwilling participant to this, at least at first, because he's sort of so you've got a kind of breaking bad sort of scenario of you where you an, an, an unlikely uh, an unlikely uh, North London guy gets kind of swept into this thing. So what happened to him? The police found out about it. Now we're not entirely sure how why, whether it was an informant or, or some other method that they, they found out about it. But they, they set up about a three month long surveillance um, operation on him and it was very 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 detailed there's a file on it in the um, public records office in Kew and it just shows that the lengths they went to they were you know they're tailing his cars and there were like four or five cars that pick, pick him up at each junction and follow him 
Um, and once they got it all together, they made the arrests in Leicester Square when he was handing over uh, some packets of um, crystals to to someone who was going to take it away. And then he basically he was sent to prison when it came to trial. But they never got a lot of the other people involved. Well, you mentioned the Cray twins revolving. For anybody who doesn't know who the Cray twins were, they're sort of very very infamous uh, pair of uh, East End brother gangsters who ended up getting uh, banged up for murder were kind of seamsters as well in the 60s right so what was their connection then one or two of the people who worked for them were involved with Kapoor so there was definitely a link there the craze didn't actually deal with you know um, Kapoor himself but their people as it were did um, and that occurs in the police documents did they take acid themselves I don't know that. I've never found anything to say they did, and it's unlikely because they were both control freaks, and, and mm. you know, acid's not really good if you're a control freak. But you never know. There's this gangster connection. There's always that, isn't there? Where there's so much, where there's money to be made. I mean, it just attracts it automatically, doesn't it? If it's illicit. But I mean, so on that front, we're, what was the legal situation? How was it changing? And in fact, in a way, why was it changing? Because it wasn't illegal, and it became illegal, and it's remained so since. Well, it's interesting because. Even in the early part of 1966, the the police, the government, the British public were largely uh, unaware of LSD. It had only been mentioned in newspapers a few times and only in a positive psychotherapeutic um, context. Then in sort of 64, 65, a number of news reports came out of America, uh, which were talking about people jumping off high buildings on acid or staring at the sun and so on and so forth. Now, staring at the sun one, um, which a big deal was made of in the newspapers, was actually found uh, several decades later to have been completely falsified. But it had the effect on Britain and it started a bit of a, a bit of a panic, if you like. And um, in March or June, I think it was 1966, there was a debate in the House of Lords about it. And Lord Stonham made the bizarre statement that no drug has, has caused as much problem in the world as LSD. Now, this was before anyone even knew about it. So why did he say that? And it's almost as, as though that the, the British establishment with a capital E had decided that they were not going to have this drug in our country doing what it did to the people in America. And within a very short space of time, a bill was passed in Parliament which made the, um, LSD illegal to, um, uh, to possess or distribute. And that was passed on September 6th, I think, 1966. And it was uh, illegal to possess or distribute from that date onwards. Interestingly, they forgot to include uh, manufacturing there, which let some people off the hook a bit later on. But basically, it, it was illegal and punished, punishable by um, you know, quite draconian uh, sentences. And the police in London did crack down and they were arresting people on the street for it and people getting sent to prison and so on and so forth. And now, in Albion Dream and in all my other books, I try to sort of address this situation to say, well, why? Why were they so down on something that, that there'd been no medical study on? You know, there was nothing to suggest that it was in any way anything more than a really, really interesting and exciting drug to take. Um, but the British are like that. They like to ban things. And, and that's what they did. And I think what happened was the British establishment with a capital E saw this drug as being something that was going to uh, disturb and uproot the youth of the day who they'd just got into line with the, you know, the whole birth, school, work, death uh, way of doing things. And now here was this drug that came on that just blew people's worlds apart. And you didn't want to go back to, to working for Matthew and son or listening to your parents or you know anything like that. And I think they were trying to nip that in the bud right at the beginning. Uh, and the media 
in sort of 67, 68, 69 was full of stories about pop stars who had been buffed for LSD. And it was almost trying to discredit them because, again, the British establishment realised that, that the Beatles and, and people like that were influencing young people in, in their millions, really. Uh, you know, that, that caused a furore. I mean, to be fair, their fears were somewhat justified, weren't they? Because, um, you know, the transformatory effect of taking LSD, I mean, just talking to Joey Mellon about it, you know, and, um, you know, the difference it made to him. And he, he's from a kind of posh establishment background, went to Eton, went to Oxford, you know, was was part of that set that were effectively being trained to go out there and kind of uh, run, the em- run the empire. And, you know, people were just stopping that. And America, of course people yeah tuning in dropping out and you know setting out across america to go west and so you can see that the fears um were sort of somewhat justified and i suppose it must have been quite terrifying for that you know post-war generation and establishment who were sort of intent on you know getting the world all ordered again that this thing had come in which had the potential to completely disrupt it all here's something from the 14-hour technical dream at ali pali Alexander Palace on April 29th, 1967, when I think, uh, I guess, a lot of the people present were high on Victor Kapoor's acid. What do you do for a living? Uh, well, sometimes I dance for a living. Uh, sometimes I run switchboards. Sometimes I work with sick children. Sometimes I just live. Because in something like this, uh, all you can do is dig it. You just go where it's going and flow with it. What does that mean? <laughs> do it. Live it. It's all here, man. There are God knows how many thousands of beautiful people digging it. Don't take pictures of me. Take pictures what, what of you, them. What, what can come out of it? Beautiful people. <laughs> Beautiful children are growing up in the hills of San Francisco that are we're just so free and so loving. They're fragile. No, beautiful, fine, loving children. Absolutely free, loving children. Those are the children who may get a chance to grow up and to have a loving world. Maybe it'll be three generations from now. But. We can fight our, our middle-class backgrounds or whatever it is that we're fighting. And we can try to give something prettier to our children. And give something prettier to the world that's so bloody worried about everything. Prettier than war. Prettier than wars and blood and death and income tax. <laughs> A poetry recital by a new wave poet, a member of the underground. What did you think of this evening? I thought it was marvellous, you know, I mean, especially as I was on a trip. <laughs> what do you mean on a trip? Um, acid. How do you mean? LSD. But to people in 65, 60, 66, 67, when they were taking this LSD, which was potent and pure, 
it was just blowing their minds. It was so different to anything that we can conceive of. And I've talked to many people who, who said they took their first dose of acid and then the day after they walked out of their lives, basically. They walked into a new life. They walked out of marriages. They walked out of jobs. They walked out of education and just started to live completely differently, informed by the basically the, the acid vision. And, and that's hard for people to grasp, I think, especially with, with, with the acid that's around today because it's qualitatively different to, to how it was then for reasons that I have no idea, uh, but it is. Um, and it affected people um, in, in a much more um, powerful and potent way, I think, that, than we can imagine. And it did change people. Well, I wasn't around in the 60s to taste it, but I mean, you hear about the, the effects it had on people. It was certainly a lot stronger. I mean, it seems quite different now. Same with ecstasy, possibly, from the from the beginning, you know, to the way it's now but so it has to go underground because it's been made illegal and what impact did that have then Andy, on its use and on the people who were using it i mean obviously they were in the risk of getting arrested and banged up as victor did and other people did but did it affect the way people were using it um it, it did but i mean again we have this idea that LSD was all about flower power and love and peace and so on and so forth, because that's the story that the media basically have told us over and over again. And many of the key players want that narrative to, to be the case. But it permeated every level of society. And you had, you know, like street kids on council houses taking it and, mm. and going out and doing wacky things, as well as the people who were into meditating or, you know, going out into, into nature. And what happened, I think, was the fact that it was so heavily policed helped form an LSD culture. And people who liked LSD tended to gather together and, you know, to go to the same clubs, to listen to the same music and to live that the same sort of lifestyle. And then that led to um, whole areas of, of cities and towns becoming um, effectively little LSD enclaves. You know, you start getting the squatting scene, which was based a lot around LSD in London and in other areas. And then people in sort of 1970, 71 thought, well, if we're having such a good time on acid and we really like doing it communally, why don't we start doing it out in the countryside where we can do it how we want and no one can bother us? And that was basically the birth of the festival scene. Um, you know, the first main one really to do with um, LSD was um, Glastonbury Fair in 1971, which was, you know, founded on um, an LSD vision that Andrew Kerr had had. And he decided to, to form the, the Glastonbury Festival with Arabella Churchill. He got Michael Evis to, um, to, to rent in the land. And then, you know, in, in mid-summer 1971, they put on this amazing festival, which people see on YouTube videos there, where people just used, went there, listened to and played music and took phenomenal quantities of LSD. It was, it was there in, you know, the hundreds of thousands. So actually that was inspired by an acid vision then? Yes. Yeah, it was. In fact, all, all the, the free festivals um, that, that happened in the early 70s, right through to the late 70s, were all... Were all Sort of inspired by three main people there was um there was andrew kerr who founded the um, 1971 glastonbury festival on a, an lsd vision and then you had people like um uh, sid roll and Yubi uh, dwyer and wally hoop who would all be in acid heads and they founded between them the stonehenge festivals or the people's free festivals as they were known uh, windsor watchfield the Megan Fairs, Trentisher, and so on and so forth. And the philosophy of those free festivals is bring what you expect to find, drugs, food, anything, you took it there. And these, these communities sprang up and lasted for anything from one day to two or three weeks. And at one point in the, in the mid-1970s, you could go on the road and be at a free festival all the time from April right through to the end of September, if, if not later. 
And this created like a traveling, um, hardcore traveling community of festival people, uh, many of whom lived in, in teepees, tents, vans, and so on and so forth. And um, people from all over flocked to these festivals and they became like a focus for, for acid heads to go both for the experience because you could take acid in, in that, uh, that setting and it was all designed for you in a way, you know, you knew you wouldn't get any hassle, the music, the sound, the lights, everything was just perfect for you. And people used to also go there and use them as um, um, cash and carries, if you like, to go stock up on, on acid a few months or whatever, because that's where you could, you could score in quantities. Now, obviously, this was a, a huge development from people sitting around listening to music, and the authorities decided that they didn't like that at all. And from the very early 70s, they started uh, tracking the progress of free festivals. In fact, there was a police operation called Stuff, which stood for Stop the Unlawful Free Festivals. And it was around this time that they realized that from 1970, 71 onwards, the Home Officers um, Central Drugs Intelligence Unit started analyzing LSD seizures in Britain and abroad. And they realized that there was a new type of LSD on the market which is a microdot, never been seen before. Previously, acid had come on blotting paper, in capsules, pills, and so on and so forth. But these were tiny little things, size of a pinhead, basically. Um, and they were finding them in America and Australia, but they all, when they analyzed them, they found that they all came from somewhere, either in Britain or on the continent. And this was the genesis of what later became known as the microdot gang or Operation Julie, which was set up by an American drugs writer called David Solomon, who had been uh, he'd worked in the OSS in World War II. He was uh, editor of Metronome, the jazz mag magazine, and an early adapter of psychedelics. And he came over to um, Britain in 1969 uh, and recruited a young chemist from Liverpool called Richard Kemp into uh, making um, high-quality LSD. And from that, uh, from 1970-71 right through to 1977, millions of uh, microdots were made by... Um, Kemp, the chemist, and another chemist called Andy Munro in two separate operations, but all managed by the same people at the top of the, the tree. And that was um, bust by a police operation called Operation Julie. Uh, and I, I termed the conspirators the microdot gang because it's an easy uh, catch-all term, really. Uh, but their acid, the, the, uh, operate, the microdot gang's microdots, revolutionised the LSD scene in Britain because it was monstrously powerful uh, I can't tell you how, how powerful and qualitatively different it is to today's LSD. One microdot would, um, uh, if you weren't sort of particularly used to them, would send you on a powerful um, visual LSD trip for up to 12 hours. So that was, the, and they were making that here in the UK. Whereabouts actually? He made some in, in his cellar in Liverpool. He made some in Chesterfield and in various places in London and, and, and the south of England. But what happened was as the business grew and there was an insatiable demand for, for, for microdots, absolutely insatiable, um, then moved out to rural Wales. Uh, and so him and his wife, Christine Bott, were living the hippie back to the land lifestyle. And he started up a lab there. So another chemist, Andy Munro, was recruited, and he set up a lab in uh, in North London. And um, you know, for a few years, uh, that lab and Kemp's lab were, were churning out millions and millions of doses. And th those doses were finding their way to the free festivals uh, very cheaply. But they were also going all over Britain. Uh, you know, and whilst LSD in and of itself isn't a dangerous drug, to the unwary, the young, it's very dangerous. And the, the, the newspapers uh, carry quite a lot of stories of people who've taken um, a microdot and then they've been run over accidentally because, you know, they weren't paying attention. And in one case, uh, a girl in Preston 
um, died after taking a microdot that we know came from the, the microdot gang. Um, and that's what really stimulated Operation Julie to get going because they sort of said, you know, we can't have people killing our kids, even though she died of asphyxia from panicking, not from the drug itself. Um, you know, there's an argument there to be made that if LSD had been legal and people were told how to use it properly, she would never have died because she would have had that knowledge. But obviously, if something's kept illegal and under wraps, you don't know about it. And unless you're part of the LSD culture, which looked after its own and taught about the importance of set and setting and things like that, if you're just necking a microdot when you're 16 in a pub with a load of soldiers, which is what she did, you know, the outcome's not going to be good. Here is a sidebar about Operation Julie, named after Sergeant Julie Taylor from the Wiltshire Constabulary. It's from an article written by Caroline Hitt for the Daily Mirror. Operation Julie was one of the biggest drugs investigations the UK has ever seen. It involved 800 officers drawn from 11 police forces who went undercover for more than a year to break two LSD rings based, as Andy said, in Mid Wales. Both were linked to Timothy Leary via the Californian bohemian David Solomon. Solomon was an associate of Leary's and came to Cambridge in the late 60s when he met the young biochemist Richard Kemp. Kemp wasn't just a first-rate scientist. Like many of those involved in the drug scene, he was a passionate believer in the power of LSD to expand consciousness and change the world. He had stumbled upon a method of creating the purest LSD the world has ever seen. Along with his girlfriend, Dr. Christine Bott, he moved to a remote farmhouse in Mid Wales and set up a laboratory in the basement of a mansion 50 miles away. To the locals, the couple were just another pair of incomers, arriving in search of the good life, growing vegetables, breeding goats, and entering them into local agricultural shows. But Kemp was making LSD on a staggering scale. Millions of doses were being created in the cellar. His incredible factory remained under the police radar until he was betrayed by an old associate called Jerry Thomas. Busted trying to smuggle cannabis into Canada, Thomas traded information in an attempt to win a lighter sentence. Naming Kemp, Bott, Solomon and another man called Henry, he shared his knowledge of the biggest acid lab in the world. The intelligence was passed back across the Atlantic, where the police had already noticed a huge increase of LSD on the festival scene. The breakthrough came when a call was made to the control room to say there had been a fatal accident involving a Red Range Rover and a Mini Estate. Richard Kemp and Christine Bort had escaped with their lives, but a Welsh minister and his pregnant wife were dead. In the Range Rover, fragments of paper were found that contained chemicals used in the manufacture of LSD. In March 1977, the police swooped on 87 premises all over Britain. They arrested 122 people, and under interrogation, some of the suspects began to betray for lighter sentences and reveal the whereabouts of cash and drugs. In October, the police dug beneath the floor tiles in Richard Kemp and Christine Bott's kitchen. In a plastic box, there were 1.3 kilos of acid crystals, enough to make acid tabs worth £65 million. That's nearly half a billion in today's money. The 17 players were sentenced to a total of 124 years in prison. Richard Kemp got 12 years, and Christine Bott, rather unfairly, got nine years. Apparently, there were mixed feelings on the side of the law. Despite his pride in the men and women who broke in one of the biggest drug rings in history, 
Di Reese, the head officer, watch those he had brought to justice sentenced. Initially, we treated them as villains, he said. But as we got to know them, we built up a sort of respect. Not that we admired them. But they're educated people who were either chemists, doctors, accountants, and had used their extreme talents for a criminal enterprise. That was very sad. And I'm not ashamed to say, when I was standing behind them on the day they were sentenced, I had a tear in my eye to think such wonderful, clever people were going to go to a jail for a considerable time. What happened to those guys, Andy? Are they still around? You know, they all served their sentences and went their separate ways. Now, some of them are still around. Going to some of them, and I'm currently writing a biography of Smiles, Alston Hughes, who was their major LSD distributor. But the principals don't want to talk about it for whatever reason. Richard Kemp doesn't live in Britain uh, and has refused every attempt to get him to be interviewed by documentary people or me me or anyone. Uh, The other chemist lives somewhere else. He doesn't, he won't talk on the record. So there's really only Miles, really, who's prepared to talk. Why do you think that is? I mean, it's... um... No, and this perturbs me because to me, it's part of Britain's hidden history that desperately needs to be recorded because if it's not, then we lose it. I like to think that they would like to see their place in history for what they what they did. You know, that that's my sort of uh, angle on it. But just to return to the cultural impact, you talk did have this transformatory effect on Western counterculture, and of course that became culture. I mean, the obviously we know about music and you know light shows and psychedelic art and all that stuff. But it's interesting, isn't it, that a lot of social reform and social change. Uh, came from people who basically been had their change initiated by taking acid, didn't it? So as the 60s move into the 70s, the counterculture becomes more kind of bedded in society, doesn't it? Political movements, you know, <clears throat> the green movement, women's movement, gay movement, uh, ecology, vegetarianism. And, and it's not all about acid, is it? But a lot of it was connected. Acid with- ma- makes you so aware of your body that you become more interested about what you're putting in it, what you're doing with it, you know, how you're looking after yourself and and all those things, you know, the macrobiotic diets, vegetarianism, veganism, um, the green movement, all had their roots in the counterculture uh, to to one degree or another. And I don't think that's that's sort of recognised enough because we just think it just like is what it is, but that's where it all came from. And of course, because um, some hardcore LSD heads stuck together they often lived in the same areas of town together then they'd have their own little micro economy they'd be what we used to call head shop set up that would sell you know supplies for them for anything from fruit and vegetables to you know chillums and pipes and things like that um and people lived in many areas semi-communally or communally uh, as it gave you a different perspective on on relationships and and how they should be how they should pan out and and, and that sort of thing and all these things slowly permeated into society uh, and you know to, to the extent that we see them today you know that like the glastonbury festival now is a huge corporate <laughs> event <laughs> but it all has its roots in lsd i think um I'm not sure about this, but I think the sort of genesis of Apple computers has got a connection with with acid, actually. Via Steve Jobs maybe taking acid, I don't know. But, I mean, you think about that, the the biggest, one of the biggest corporations in the world at its roots, to an extent, in the use of LSD, right? That and Microsoft, because both Jobs and Gates said that taking LSD was the the single biggest, uh, most influential event in their lives. And then they went on to do what they did. So, and and Tim Leary in his latter years was very involved in computing. He believed Mm -hmm. that the computers... And uh, the internet w- was the next form of LSD, if you like, you know, sort of shared information network. 
So to return to these shores, one of the people that I've been really interested in and yet found it very difficult to get people to talk about, possibly for the reasons that you're saying, actually, is R.D. Lang. And, um, you know, we've talked about the sort of counterculture in Scotland and, you know, he was Scottish and, you know, was the anti-psychiatrist, so-called anti-psychiatrist, whose theories ended up making him into a countercultural guru of sorts, right? But, um, you know, him running that... Uh, you know, experiment, whatever you want to call it, in East London at Kingsley Hall, where the so-called patients, some of whom were schizophrenic, and the people who were looking after them were sort of living on the same basis without the separation between who's mad and who's not, and taking acid, of course. And I, I, that may be one of the reasons why the psychiatric community are reluctant to talk about Lang, because they see, they see it now as something kind of beyond the pale and shameful. But if you look at uh, Luke... Fowler's film about Lang, a quite radical technique that he was using there involving acid, it's quite apparent that, in some cases at least, he had an incredibly positive transformatory effect on people's mental health, right? And that's a whole other thing that you were talking about right from the beginning, wasn't there? This therapeutic, psychotherapeutic use of acid, um, you know, was something which is which was just cut off, like, you know, it's hacked off at the roots, wasn't it? Absolutely. And Lang came around at the wrong time because it was being damned at that point. So therefore he, you know, was equally damned with it. And mm -hmm. in fact, I was talking to um, uh, Ben Sessa, uh, who was very uh, influential in the developing MDMA as a therapeutic tool these days. And he said when he was a, um, a medical student, you just couldn't find anything about uh, LSD use in the past. It had been sort of hidden, expunged, written out of the history of, of, um, of uh, psych psychiatry and psychology. Uh, and uh, that you know that's just terrible because they had, why why are people so scared about um, something that could change people's lives for the better if it's used properly and thankfully now in the um, 21st century uh, you know tests have been done on LSD again and it, it's coming back into the therapeutic stable and in fact uh, it's rare rarely I go a day without seeing a news headline about how therapeutic some form of psychedelic drug is and, and how it's going to be used which of course begs the question, you know, has it got into the wrong hands and now it's just a corporate tool? But it's better out than in, as it were. So to return to, um, you know, we're in the 70s, it's gone underground, you've got the this microdot revolution with the microdot gang, but these police operations to wipe it out. So they weren't successful. I mean, so I assume that even after Operation Julie and the rest of that gang, there were labs dotted around the UK. So, I mean, give, give us a sort of little geography of acid labs in the UK from the 70s and, eight, 70s and 80s and 90s onwards. Well, I mean, in my research on illicit LSD labs in Britain, I've now found, I think, 25 uh, known examples of uh, an illicit LSD lab between 1966 and uh, a couple of years ago. And they cropped up every now and again, you know, that people were doing it in, in, in houses or they're doing it at, at um, university research centres and using the equipment there on their off time and what have you. So there was always a lab producing something somewhere. And if they weren't actually producing the acid, the acid was coming in from the continent or America and it was being um, laid to blotter, as it were, here for, for distribution. So there's al always been uh, some around. And, you know, a lot of it was done by criminal gangs. That, that's perfectly true. But equally, a lot of it was done by people who were for ideological uh, reasons. And the main person there would be a guy called, an American guy called Casey Hardison, who in 19... Ooh, it might be 1996 or something, uh, had a lab in um, Brighton where he was producing high-quality LSD, MDMA and various other things, uh, and um, hundreds of thousands of doses. 
and he got um, arrested after a tip-off and he mounted his own defense on the on the grounds of cognitive liberty that you know he should not be being tried for producing something that is purely to do with the individual uh, and the state should have no part in that and of course that didn't go down well in court and he did his 12 years or whatever and was deported to america afterwards but you know it showed that it wasn't all cynical faceless gangsters doing it and there, there were a lot of people who, who were of integrity whose heart was really in trying to get these unique substances out to people so they could examine them the world the lives relationships you know under the influence and i guess as well by the time you get to sort of mid 80s late 80s you know the so-called second summers of love you know which you which were largely propelled by mdma ecstasy but actually acid very quickly became part of that too and i mean and, and spawning a new gener- new new generation of people using lsd and of course new types of music you know trance and stuff which is you know Im- influenced by that too a new kind of psychedelia right that's right. I mean, obviously, after um, Operation Julie, um, acid was still coming into the country and still being made here, but it, but it wasn't quite the same. And then in the sort of early to mid 90s, MDMA uh, started to, to come in and that just revolutionized things. That was a whole new culture, you know, separate from acid, even though acid was involved in it. Um, and it involved a lot of going out into fields, dancing and so on and so forth. And uh, as you say, new musics and everything. Uh, the interesting thing there is uh, Spiral Tribe, who were one of the main um, da- uh, sound systems, if you like, who traveled in convoy and lift together and everything like that, heavy MDMA proponents. Uh, their, um, one of their main people later said that he realised that when he took acid, that that was just on a completely different level to MDMA. MDMA was good for, you know, the uh, cohesiveness, the, the togetherness, the, the, the tribalness, if you like. But when he took some really good quality LSD, it again blew him away and he realised that was all about the interconnectedness of things and, and much deeper levels than, than, than MDMA. But the two scenes thrive together and, um, you know, still do to this day. Setting aside the therapeutic potential for now, do you think that acid now has the potential to radically change people in the way that it was doing, obviously, with Joey Mellon and all those people in the 60s who were, you know, completely turning their back on their, you know, their heritage, as it were? And are we still able to do that? Or is it that the actual culture around us also affects the effect that acid has? Uh, yes, I think the latter, to a, to a certain extent, it can never be, I don't think, as transformative as it was in the very early days. But yes, it is still transformative. And I know of many people over the past decade, for instance, who've taken acid and it's changed their lives completely because they just didn't realise perhaps it's been people who've been used to MDMA and they've thought oh, it's just like a different sort of MDMA. But when they've taken a you know a good dose of, of, of acid, they've realised it's a completely different ballgame and it, it changes them. It makes them want to live differently. I think what there isn't these days, there isn't the same LSD culture as there used to be. It's much more fragmented now and it's spread across all cultures and it's just become another drug in, in, in a, a litany of drugs, which is perhaps not a bad thing, but it's not necessarily a good thing either. The individual dosages that, that are available these days aren't as powerful microgram-wise as they were um, you know, in the, the, the 1960s. And even if you take multiple doses of some of the LSD around these days, it still isn't the same. It's, I think, so I'm told it's because synthetic agotamine is used these days, whereas um, originally it was the organic agotamine, and that apparently makes a difference to the, the finished product. Keep it organic as ever. Let's keep it organic. Uh, and of course, you know, there's been in recent years, you know, the advent of ayahuasca 
to the West much more so. And then there's a rediscovery of psilocybin and mushrooms and stuff, isn't there? So there's other things <clears throat> going on. The other thing which has happened on the West Coast in Silicon Valley, actually, is, is that microdosing acid has almost become a way of increasing your productivity. So it's not necessarily about, you know, having some radical revolution in the head, but more about sort of, you know, heightening your daily experience and maybe getting more work done or having more having better ideas which you can turn into startups so a lot of people and myself included see this is quite a sinister thing that the lsd has been retooled for the corporate working generation uh, as you know take this it'll make you work harder faster longer might be good in some circumstances but not necessarily in others because it just becomes another tool to get people with the nose to the grindstone doesn't it some people Possibly myself among them might say, well, that's just a waste of good drugs. People say, oh, no, no, it works, and, and they do it. But then again, are they saying that because they haven't got the um, the courage, perhaps, to take an optimum dose of that substance? Heroic doses, as Terence McKenna would say. Yeah, so you've got to kind of tune out, turn off, and get back in sort of uh, uh, situation. <laughs> to me, it, it is becoming a bit corporatised because it's mm. always in the newspapers about such and such companies starting up and they're going to be using psychedelics to, to help this that and the other and yes they can be used to help people but that the medical aspect isn't the be all and end all by a long way you know there's much much more to lsd than the, the medical aspect and you know as i always said to people what about good old cosmic fun which is what Joe, joey mellon and co were having before michael hollingshead came along very good well listen andy uh thanks for that that sort of wonderful survey of Albion Dreaming. And do come back maybe uh, when the next book is out and tell us more about that. Okay, thanks, Stephen. Thanks a lot to Andy. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did, listener. And perhaps you've had your own psychedelic experiences. I certainly have. I first took LSD myself when I was 15. And I have to be honest, I think it did fundamentally change me in some way. But then so did many other things. Falling in love falling out of love, getting dumped, seeing friends die, my father dying, parenthood, travelling the world, finding a strange record in a St. Petersburg flea market, attack ships off the shoulder of Orion, watching sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. All those moments lost my tears in vain. <laughs> anyway, come and join us, bureauoflostculture.com. Check out all our other adventures and stories and do support us. Leave a review for us. That'd be amazing. Let people know about this show if you dig it. Uh, get our newsletter. It's all there. We will see you, hear you next time on the Bureau of Lost Culture for more stories from the other side, from the upside down. Now, this episode was sponsored by the artist known as The Real Tuesday World, www.tuesdayworld.com. This is their track, Blood Knuckled and Dusted from their album, Blood. See you next time. Shoot off, he